Hello, welcome to Okawa Book Club. We're your hosts. I'm Dylan. I'm John. And we're going to be discussing the teachings of Master Ryuho Okawa. Ryuho Okawa is a world teacher, master, and CEO of Happy Science Group. All right, so today we have the developmental stages of love, the original theory, philosophy of love in my youth by Ryuho Okawa. So this is the new book. It's filled with so many insights, but before we get into it, I'm going to turn it over to my partner, John, who will read the preface. Thanks, Dylan. From the preface, the essays I wrote between the age of about 25 and 28 happened to be found. They are short papers that I wrote in my spare time when I worked for a trading house. The secretaries of our religious affairs headquarters and the staff of the editorial division worked together to compile them into this book. As I read the manuscript, I cannot hold back my tears from welling up. The days of struggle in my youth flooded back to me. It was not only poetry that I was writing. I was also striving hard to crystallize my first basic philosophies in preparation for the day I would stand as a religious leader. The memories of my unknown days came back to me. I did not spend the six years after I attained great enlightenment in 1981 idly. No one knows about the hours of struggle I spent to develop responsible philosophies. As immature as it may be, this book is a precious piece preceding the laws of the sun. At around the same time, I was preparing the early collection of messages from various spirits, but this book reveals my own basic thoughts and their original theory. In this sense, this book is like a treasure. I hope you will appreciate each and every word to deepen your understanding of them. By Rio Okawa. Thank you, John. So uh, as you can tell, this book is really rare. It's not like many of the other ones. It is essentially to me, I interpret it as like a journal or a diary from Master Okawa when he is in the period of kind of transitioning from a man to a god or a, a common person to a religious leader in that sense. It's like a metamorphosis period. And at that metamorphosis, he is crystallizing his basic ideas which will later go on to be the fundamental tenets of the religion he goes on to create. So we can see these kind of essays. There's some figures and some charts. There are a few different interesting writings. And everything gets back to the ideas that underpin happy science today, such as the basic teachings of love, the teachings of the spiritual world, the issues that society is facing and how to deal with them, and the overall structure that the future society will come to take on the eternal path towards utopia. So what we can see is something that is similar to a journal or a diary, but each word is filled with lights, and it really shows the true thoughts of Rihokawa from the beginning. So in chapter one, we have short philosophical essays on the developmental stages of love. And we can see the dates in some of these and the times that they were written. It's very impressive. We get back to the ideas that underpin happy science, like I was saying, but it all starts out with the idea of developmental stages of love. So there are multiple stages of love, which correlate to the levels of enlightenment or the realms of the spiritual world. It all goes back to the, the same thing truth, the time, and space. So this fundamental teaching is underpinning the laws of the sun, the laws of eternity, and the golden laws. And it's written here at the very beginning stages. How did you think about this chapter, John? 
I thought this chapter was beautiful. Um, I appreciated how uh, in the prologue and in the, in the first chapter, there's uh, an emphasis upon this concept uh, of the monism of love. Mm -hmm. The idea that the reality, that love is universal. Mm -hmm. It is the natural state of the universe. Um, and that the universe isn't naturally angry or aggressive or without a sense of morality or anything like that. It is a beautiful creation from God that is loving. And the reason that isn't apparent to us at times or is essentially just because there are hindrances like anger and hatred and resentment and things of that nature. And so we go from that to the manner in which the uh, developmental stages of love exist and manifest in our lives, you know, and I thought it was great that it starts with self-love, which develops into self-trust. Uh, mm -hmm. And then from there, we're able to expand our love into the world. And there was a something I thought that correlated sort of with this chapter was later in the book, there was a figure and it was called the construction of love. And it was describing these developmental stages of love at the level of society. So there was society of fundamental love, which uh, entails empathy, then society of nurturing love, which is growth and progress, society of forgiving love, which is tolerance, and then the society of love incarnate, which is the achievement of utopia and the realization of truth and oneness with the universe. And I think that this sort of chart or map uh, for civilization, and there are many of them in this book, uh, really outlines how these early writings are so foundational and they're not just for individuals, they're for the entirety of human civilization, but they're starting at the individual level. And we see this as a theme in all of uh, Master Okawa's works. And it's just so wonderful to see how it all started, where the foundation of it all is coming from. Mm, yeah, it's a really good way to put it. Basically, I like how you were saying the monism of love because some people say hatred is the opposite of love. But the truth is that love is that which exists. Love is the fundamental existence. And there are temporary blockages which get in the way of that. But that doesn't make hatred as eternal or hatred as the truth. The truth is love. And there is the force of light which underpins this whole universe. It's not a universe of darkness. And that's a beautiful idea. And from there, you mentioned about the stages of love that start from there. So when I was looking at that construction of love chart, something popped into my mind, which is a lot of people today demand tolerance as the fundamental force of society. And tolerance is equivalent to the seven dimensional love called forgiving love, but it must be supported by many other factors in order for us to get there. So we can't get rid of growth and progress from our society. We can't get rid of these fundamental things which underpin the possibility that tolerance can come to exist. So we have to allow a system of hierarchy, a system of self-growth, self-worth, self-expansion that is based on an economic system before we can get to the stage of more of equality. This is a kind of rejection of communism in that sense. It is a way to say that utopia cannot be achieved without these fundamental forces that are based on human nature, ultimately. Hmm. I think that's such a great insight. You know, I mean, especially like the fifth dimensional uh, fundamental love relating with empathy. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that in the world today, there's an expectation of tolerance 
regardless of whether there's empathy, it's like on the outside, you have to appear tolerant, regardless of what you're feeling internally. And I think it's a recipe for resentment oftentimes in the world. And it's part of the problem of why tolerance is so difficult. So, yeah. And even further than that, people these days are starting to talk about my truth and your truth mm -hmm. rather than the truth. Right. So they're saying everything is uh, subjective. And because of that, there can be no real empathy and understanding of others because it's it's really just their way of seeing the world right. and their perception is reality itself, hmm. which is a kind of flawed notion. Yeah. But going back to chapter one, you know, I think it's just really essential to get back to these fundamental concepts. So animals cannot even experience these higher levels of love. Animals are, when they return to the afterlife, they usually go to the fourth dimension and they cannot experience the higher forms of love that make human beings divine. So such things as loving without expecting anything in return or wanting to serve people outside of that which will bring us benefit, these are very human concepts when humans are at their best. And this kind of goes against the teachings which say that human beings are damned to eternal sin or we are just wretched. This is saying that human beings can become noble divine creatures through the course of love and through the higher forms of love. And that love is not just a singular concept, but there are many kind of stair steps up the levels of love. Yep. Going on to uh, chapter two, we have Love and Life. Love and Life is a collection of short essays, which includes essays from New York. Was there anything that stuck out to you from this second chapter, John? Well, I actually really like the very first one, uh, which was, he does not love, does not know God. In that short essay, in the second paragraph, it says, well, in the first, after following that statement, these are not words of warning to those who do not believe in God. Rather, they are warning to those who think they are living with faith in God. When our love for others runs dry, we no longer believe in God. And I thought that was a really powerful statement because there are, I think it's easy to, even when you are a faithful person, to feel like, I have faith, so you can kind of lose touch with the sense of love that is really at the cornerstone of faith. And so, you know, and it proceeds to say, let us be cautious with ourselves. Let us always check to see if our hearts are full of love for others. If there is no love in our hearts, we no longer know God. That's such a valuable concept, John, because, for example, atheists, usually they are not believing something that they created, but it's something as a reaction against this idea of religion. Mm -hmm. And because religion hasn't had these self-purification methods in the past where they do reflection based on their own lapses in judgment, but this is telling religious people to not get carried away with ourselves, to not be using God as a tool of authority, but to remember that at the fundamental source of religion is the power of love. And so I think this is a really beautiful phrase and short essay. And I also thought the next one is really beautiful as well, which is based on the teachings of Marcus Aurelius. It says, I awake to do the work of a man. It's about the strictness that a wise man has with himself. And the teachings of uh, Stoicism that Marcus Aurelius taught are based on the virtues. And one of the virtues is something similar to purity. Purity and also there's a list of things such as seriousness or simplicity or modesty. There's a variety of uh, virtues, but 
it ultimately gets back to the point of religious man or religious figure controlling themselves. So this is a, a very beautiful concept that I think we all need to remember in this age of abundance where so many desires are allowed to roam free. These moral rules are in a society. I agree. Part of this chapter I really enjoyed was the keeping a rein on your tongue mm -hmm. and the notion that bad words slip out of our mouth uh, and when we're angry or upset. And, and I appreciated that there was discussed that like people often feel that it's like against their will. Like when that happens, it just happens automatically. And uh -huh. it's like, oh, I couldn't help myself in that moment. Or uh, Master gives an example that he believed that he had a sharp tongue because he inherited it from his mother and that it wasn't something he would be able to control. And but then came to the realization that something like that is not hereditary and it is something that we could control. And it's just a matter of breaking a bad habit mm -hmm. and uh, removing that those bad elements that are within our heart, because that's what it's a reflection of. So even if it feels automatic and against our, our will when it's happening, it's a matter of, <clears throat> I think, turning inwards and mm. clarifying that part of our heart and opening up the love in ourselves. And then we won't say hurtful things to others. And that small thing, it goes such a long way because I think like just in life, I'm sure we've all experienced that having something hurtful said to us or saying something hurtful to another person uh, can leave a long lasting impact. And that can further uh, promulgate uh, tendencies of anger and resentment and hatred in, in life. And so something so simple like that, uh, just learning to control and change little habits goes a long way. Yeah, it's really true. Yeah. Just for the sake of time, I'm going to move on to chapter three. I thought that this chapter about loving human beings is something uh, very beautiful. There's a lot of nice words in here that really touch the heart. I like in the, on page 58 about love and lust. It mentions about Mestro Kawa being changed at 11 years old by reading the biography of Albert Schwitzer. And he was really moved about the idea that you should focus on developing yourself as much as possible until the age of 30, and then dedicate the rest of your life to serving other people. So Albert Switzer devoted himself to medicine, music, and overall charity work around the world. So he was a figure that turned his life into a form of love itself, a love incarnate. And that's what Master Okawa aimed to do as well. So it's a beautiful idea that um, our years are not just arbitrary, but year by year, we grow towards something more complete or more uh, full in our character and our virtue. And we use our life to serve others as a, um, a noble purpose and that we can live each moment knowing that eventually we will reach the age of death. But in our limited time on this planet, we're going to help other people and uh, nurture them and forgive them so that we can ultimately lead a brilliant life. But there's a lot of beautiful concepts in this chapter. Was there anything else that you wanted to mention? Yeah, I, I really appreciated the love and its enemies uh, section where uh, there's discussion about love and stoicism, um, love and intellect, uh, love and romantic love, 
and so on. And what I one thing I really appreciated about these things and what prefaces them is that uh, Nastarkava states that the enemies of love that I talk about here do not necessarily stand against love. Rather, they come into the laboratory of love called life more than once, and with one misstep, they will lead us astray from the path to supreme love. And I found that uh, it wasn't that any of these things were being condemned, but that there was very much a middle way being taken in them. So it isn't, so for each one, you know, Stoicism, uh, for example, it's good uh, if you're using it in a benevolent way, in a manner that allows you to essentially monitor yourself mm -hmm. and to monitor your passions and so forth. But when it becomes to the excess, mm -hmm. um, then, then you're, it could become avoidant and it could become, it could sort of result in like a coldness. So I think that uh, finding the balance in these things, you know, the same with intellect or romantic love, you know, where romantic love uh, is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Uh, but if it's purely just lust, then that's not going to reveal the nature of love. And I appreciated the balanced perspective on these because it's not condemning anything in an absolute sense, nor is it endorsing mm -hmm. uh, anything in an absolute sense. And it's really necessitating uh, this concept of just self-monitoring and being mindful uh, of the way we're going about carrying ourselves in our lives. Yeah, the idea of life as a laboratory in which we are experimenting on ourselves to improve our nature, that's a very interesting concept. And being fully aware of where we stand at any given point and the values that we're portraying, but uh, also keeping in mind the middle way to avoid excesses in our, our mental state and keeping ourselves devoted to pure love in its truest form and not getting off the right track. That's just a really necessary concept, I think, for people today. I think people are using life as a laboratory in the wrong meaning. They're experimenting with all different types of uh, behaviors, no matter how risky they are. And their life is kind of drifting like a jellyfish in the sea as they bump into uh, unfortunate things again and again. But this is an idea of uh, self-control and proving ourselves at the fundamental level as human beings. I wanted to move on to chapter four, Love and My Mission, which gets into Master Okawa's life as a religious leader and the values and the experiences that he had that led him to be the person that he is today. So there's a few different topics in here, but I thought the genius of love on page 94 was kind of interesting. It says on page 95, actually, Genius of Love, what a great title it is. When the medal named Genius of Love is hung around your neck, you will find the following words inscribed on his back. This person is a genius of love because, as a result of exploring their inner self, this person has found that their very existence is love itself and has made others aware of it as well. So this kind of gets back to the idea of uh, love incarnate. But it's essentially calling the, the archangels and the Tathagata, the uh, you know, great beings of history, it's calling them as actually geniuses of love in another phrase. It's qualities that people have that are innate, but they're, it leads them to become revolutionary in their period. That it leads them to change the world as a genius of love. 
and discovers many new things, creates inventions, or just fundamentally changes the nature of the world. We might think of people in history and find our own definitions of who those people might be. But um, yeah, it's really interesting, a genius of love. Is there anything else that stood out to you from this chapter? Yeah, I loved that one. Um, and the one just before it uh, on endurance, mm -hmm. um, about how it starts saying, no great thinker was free of slander by others. Uh, no great religious leader was free of humiliation by others. The names of those who ridiculed Socrates have faded from history, but there is not a single person who hasn't heard the name of Socrates, mm. who hasn't heard of Socrates' name. Mm. And it proceeds to speak about Jesus being surrounded by enemies while he was telling people to love their enemies. And I think that the being able to endure slander, humiliation, loneliness, enduring when we're not feeling loved by the world is something that, as it says here, it allows us to develop our inner life. And again, it, it almost seems like a simple teaching, but it can be very challenging. I think it's something a lot of us could relate to. We've all been in situations where we maybe feel unloved and enduring that though, and uh, keeping ourselves focused on that internal light is what's going to get us through that. So I really appreciated that. <laughs> yeah. Again, we're going to move on for the sake of time, but we have chapter five, Love in the Spirit World. This is kind of similar to the book, The Hell You Never Knew, or My Journey Through the Spirit World, or even The Laws of Eternity. It's a map, an understanding of the spirit world as it exists today and the um, changes that have been made over time. But yeah, there's some things that other religions might be wondering. Is that real? But because they're so vivid and they, they really stand out a lot, especially the different realms of hell. I think uh, most people think of hell as a place where big red demon is burning people in a pot. But this shows the world of hell is a very different place. It's a place of, where people of like mind are attracted to one another and they engage in, in a kind of exaggerated form of the debauchery that they lived on earth or the mistakes that they made on earth. So it's a training ground, it's a, a hospital, but it's ultimately a place where people learn why their thoughts and actions were mistaken while they were living on earth through living through a very dramatic experience. Uh, but it goes on to the realms of uh, heaven. And I was just wondering if there's anything you wanted to comment on on this chapter. I appreciated uh, the, the concept of hell as being like a hospital mm -hmm. uh, where the souls are sick because they don't have love and they don't have faith and they don't recognize the truth of reincarnation and being children of God. And I think that there's a sense of hope in that, that maybe certain religions have not provided where hell is considered sort of an eternal damnation. You know, this is more that it's a place you go. It's like a rehabilitation period. And and then I enjoyed, uh, you know, in terms of the higher dimensions, just correlating uh, the stages of love with them and seeing how it ties into enlightenment and how uh, love and enlightenment are um, mutually exclusive. They, they can't be separated. Mm -hmm. So enlightenment is not a purely intellectual uh, endeavor by any means. And we've seen that through so many of Master's works, which emphasize faith uh, extensively. And I appreciated the emphasis of love in that as well. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a very multifaceted thing. And I think it speaks to the complexities of uh, going forward and progressing on one's path of enlightenment. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and it, it ultimately gets back to there's another essay in here on spiritual freedom. So this is about the idea of uh, free will. And there's a religion of the past that has stated that human beings are, that their whole lives are determined and that everything is predetermined from the beginning. But that's actually incorrect. God did grant us free will and God did not create hell. Actually, human beings created hell through the mistaken use of free will. But, um, you know, that's just another kind of understanding of good and evil is that God does not create evil, but God gives human beings the freedom to choose. And through human beings' wrong decisions, they have created evil and created hell. And once we're, we start making decisions, we kind of enter a stream. And through our free will, we have to get back on the right course. And God gives us many lessons throughout the ages in order to remind us the right path to take. But he does not coerce us. He does not force us to behave in a good way. He ultimately believes in freedom and grants freedom to every person. And I think that's just a really salvational idea that so many people have debated for thousands of years about what is free will, what is good, and what is evil. But this kind of clarifies everything in a very brief passage. Yeah, yeah I think we can all uh, really take that to heart. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And then uh, moving on to chapter six, love and the philosophy of happiness. So there's some more essays in this chapter, and it leads us to the end of the chapters before we go on to the epilogue. But there's a lot of uh, valuable concepts in here. There's even a figure on page 146 of the relation between mental attitude, expression, and recognition, and happiness being at the core of that. Happiness is ultimately connected to time. It's connected to recognition and expression, and it's connected to many other things. So to simplify all of these ideas, it's basically stating that the fundamental idea of happy science's worldview, love, happiness, and truth are all one, and that's the fundamental force of the universe. Was there anything that stood out to you from this chapter? I think your last statement really summed it up beautifully. Uh, and I, I appreciated, I mean, I'm not going to go into detail about it. It mm -hmm. is very abstract, but the, the principles concerning how love exists with respect to time, mm -hmm. I think are very interesting and definitely worth reading through. And uh, probably a few times because they are, you know, it is an abstract concept. Mm. But I, one part of it that I thought was very simply stated was on um, page 151. And it says, to be happy, what kind of time should you live? Just because you were unhappy in the past does not mean you should be miserable in the present. More so, you should not let past misery cast a shadow over your future. If you live in anxiety in the present just because you fear the future, what is the meaning of the present time? You can instead remember beautiful events of the past and project them into the future. And it continues from there, but I think those ideas sum up the best state of mind that we can live with in the present without having resentment and carrying the past in a negative way. And just essentially causing our mind to focus on the things that are going to bring us happiness in the present and into the future. And the incredible degree of free will and control that we have in that process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think free will is the basic of the epilogue of this book, which is about what it means to be human, and ultimately it gets back to what we can do, what we're allowed to do, and what we have the choice to do. 
And there's a poem written on this, but it's basically just thinking about these small delights and uh, the beautiful things that life has to offer. And that's what it means to be human at the end of the day. It's to choose to live such a life. The book kind of goes on to the uh, figures and kind of these notes about the basic idea of society, of love, and of life. But I'd recommend the reader to purchase the book and read them for themselves. As we wrap up here, I'm going to read the afterword of the book. And it starts out like this. I think it is important to show the starting point of my thoughts. Although happy science is thought to have begun with a collection of spiritual messages from various spiritual beings, I myself clearly had a starting point, the philosophy of love I expounded during my youth. I am so happy to be able to reveal these essays on love and the philosophy of happiness. There's a profound meaning in how this book begins, with my short essay written in New York. A businessman working for an international trading house was contemplating the monism of love. How can such a person be described? My physical body was in the third dimensional world, but my mind was trying to soar up infinitely high. With this, the significance of the anniversary year will be completed. Riho Kawa, Master and CEO of Happy Science Group, September 19th, 2021. So there's so many ideas and concepts you can get from reading this book. This book is available uh, at major bookstores such as Barnes & Noble, or it's online on sites such as Amazon.com. You can learn more on OkawaBooks.com. That's all for today's episode. Thank you very much. Thank you. So just a note, the idea of the anniversary year refers to the 40th year since Master Okawa's Great Enlightenment and the 35th year since Happy Science was established. It was great talking to you again, John. Likewise, though. In these trying times, stay happy, healthy, and positive.